0: Chapter 14 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867-1923. to Chapter 14, Section 4. The Two Types of Psychology. It is at this point that our most recent researches may suitably be introduced. We have found, in the first place, that there are two types of human psychology. In the one type, the fundamental function is feeling, and in the other, it is thought. The one feels his way into the object, the other thinks about it. The one adapts himself to his surroundings by feeling, thinking coming later, whilst the other adapts himself by means of thought, preceded by understanding. The one who feels his way transfers himself to some extent to the object, whilst the other withdraws himself from the object to some extent, or pauses before it and reflects about it. The first we called the extroverted type, because in the main he goes outside himself to the object. The latter is called the introverted type, because in a major degree he turns away from the object, withdrawing into himself and thinking about it. These remarks only give the broadest outline of the two types. But even this quite inadequate sketch enables us to recognize that the two theories are the outcome of the contrast between the two types. The sexual theory is promulgated from the standpoint of feeling, the power theory from that of thought, for the extrovert always places the accent upon the feelings that are connected with the object, whereas the introvert always puts the accent upon the ego, and is as much detached by thought from the object as possible. The irreconcilable contradictions of the two theories are now to be understood, because both theories are the product of a one-sided psychology. We find an instance of the contrast of types in Nietzsche and Wagner. The dissension between the two is due to the contrast in their ideas of psychological values. What is most prized by the one is affectation for the other, and is deemed false to the very core. Each depreciates the other. If we apply the sexual theory to an extrovert, it tallies with the facts of the case, but if we apply it to an introvert, we simply maltreat and do violence to his psychology. The same applies to the contrary case. The relative rightness of the two hostile theories is explained by the fact that each one draws its material from cases that prove the correctness of the theory. There is a remnant of persons whom neither theory fits. Has not every rule its exceptions? Criticism of both theories is indispensable. Recognition of facts showed the necessity of overcoming their contrast, and of evolving a theory that should do justice not only to one or the other type, but equally to both. Even the layman will, to some extent, have been struck by the fact that in spite of their correctness both theories really have a very unpleasant character and one not altogether pertinent under all circumstances to the strict views of science. The sexual theory is unesthetic and unsatisfying intellectually. The power theory, on the other hand, is decidedly venomous. Both inevitably reduce high-flown ideals, heroic attitudes, pathos, and deep convictions in a painful manner to a reality which is hackneyed and trite. That is, if these theories are applied to such things, but they should certainly not be so applied. Both theories are really only therapeutic instruments out of the tool chest of the physician, whose sharp and merciless knife cuts out all that is pernicious and diseased. It was just such a misapplication of theory Nietzsche tried with his destructive criticism of ideals. He regarded ideals as rampant diseases of the soul of humanity, as indeed they really are, However, in the hands of a good physician who really knows the human soul, who, as Nietzsche says, has a finger for the slightest shade, who applies the treatment only to what is really diseased in the soul, in such hands both theories prove wholesome caustics. The application must be adapted to the individual case. It is a dangerous therapy in the hands of those who do not understand how to deal out the treatment. These applications of criticism do good when there is something that should and must be destroyed, dissolved, or brought low. But can easily damage what is being built up or growing in response to life's requirements. Both theories might, therefore, be allowed to pass without attack insofar as they, like medicinal poisons, are entrusted to the safe hands of the physician. But fate has ordained that they should not remain solely in the care of those who are qualified to use them. First of all, they naturally became known to the medical public. Every practicing physician has an indefinitely high percentage of neurotics among his patients. He is therefore more or less obliged to look out for new and suitable systems of treatment. He ultimately lights upon the difficult method of psychoanalysis. He is at first not competent for this, for how should he have learnt about the secrets of the human soul? Certainly not through his academic studies. The smattering of psychiatry that he acquired for his examination barely suffices to enable him to recognize the symptoms of the commonest mental disturbances, and is far from giving him any sufficient insight into the human soul he is therefore practically quite unprepared to apply the analytic method an unusually far-reaching knowledge of the soul is indeed necessary in order to be able to apply this caustic treatment with advantage one must be in a position to differentiate elements that are diseased and should be discarded from those which are valuable and should be retained this is plainly a matter of great difficulty Any one who wishes to get a vivid impression of the way in which a psychologizing physician may unwarrantably violate a patient through an ignoble pseudo-scientific prejudice, should read what Mobius has written about Nietzsche, or he may study various psychiatric writings about the case of Christ, and will surely not hesitate to lament the lot of the patient whose fate it is to meet with such understanding. Psychoanalysis, greatly to the regret of the medical man who, however, had not accepted it, then passed over into the hands of the teaching profession. This is right, for it is really, when rightly understood and handled, an educational method, and one of the social sciences. I would, however, never personally recommend that Freud's purely sexual analysis should be exclusively applied as an educational method. It might do much harm because of its one-sidedness. In order to make psychoanalysis available for educational purposes, all the metamorphoses that have been the work of the last few years were needed. The method had to be expanded from a general psychological point of view. But the two theories of which I have spoken are not general theories. They are, as I have said, caustics to be applied, so to say, locally, for they are both destructive and reductive. They explain to the patient that his symptoms come from here or there, and are nothing but this or that. It would be very unjust to wish to maintain that this reductive theory is wrong in a given case, but when exalted into a general explanation of the nature of the soul, whether sick or healthy, a reductive theory becomes impossible. For the human soul, whether it be sick or healthy, cannot be merely reductively explained. Sexuality, it is true, is always and everywhere, present. The instinct for power certainly does penetrate the heights and the depths of the soul. But the soul itself is not solely either the one or the other, or even both together. It is also that which it has made, and will make out of them both. A person is only half understood when one knows how everything in him came about. Only a dead man can be explained in terms of the past, A living one must be otherwise explained. Life is not made up of yesterdays only, nor is it understood nor explained by reducing today to yesterday. Life has also a tomorrow, and today is only understood if we are able to add the indications of tomorrow to our knowledge of what was yesterday. This holds good for all expressions of psychological life, even for symptoms of disease. Symptoms of neurosis are not merely consequences of causes that once have been, whether they were infantile sexuality, Or infantile instinct for power. They are endeavors towards a new synthesis of life. It must immediately be added, however, they are endeavors that have miscarried. Nonetheless, they are attempts. They represent the germinal striving which has both meaning and value. They are embryos that fail to achieve life, owing to unpropitious conditions of an internal and external nature. The reader will now probably propound the question, what possible value and meaning can a neurosis have? is it not a most useless and repulsive pest of humanity? Can being nervous do anybody good? Possibly, in a way similar to that of flies and other vermin, which were created by God in order that man might exercise the useful virtue of patience. Stupid as this thought is, from the standpoint of natural science, it might be quite shrewd from that of psychology. That is, if we substitute nervous systems in the place of vermin. Even Nietzsche, who had an uncommon disdain for anything stupid and trite in thought, more than once acknowledged how much he owed to his illness. I have known more than one person who attributed all his usefulness, and the justification for his existence even, to a neurosis, that hindered all decisive stupidities of his life, compelling him to lead an existence which developed what was valuable in him. Material that would have been crushed had not the neurosis with its iron grip forced the man to keep to the place where he really belonged. There are people the meaning of whose life, whose real significance, lies in the unconscious, In consciousness lies only all that is vain and delusive. With others, the reverse is the case, and for them, the neurosis has another significance. An extended reduction is appropriate to the one, but emphatically unsuitable to the other. The reader will now, indeed, be inclined to agree to the possibility of certain cases of neurosis having such a significance, but will nevertheless be ready to deny an expediency that is so far-reaching and full of meaning to ordinary cases of this illness. What value, for instance, might there be in the aforementioned case of asthma and hysterical attacks of fear? I confess that the value here is not so obvious, especially if the case be looked at from the standpoint of a reductive theory, that is, from that of a chronique scandaleuse, of the psychological development of an individual. We perceive that both the theories hitherto discussed have this one point in common, vis they relentlessly disclose everything that is valueless in people. They are theories, or rather hypotheses, which explain wherein this cause of the sickness lies. They are accordingly concerned not with the values of a person, but with his lack of value that makes itself evident in a disturbing way. From this point of view, it is possible to be reconciled to both standpoints. A value is a possibility by means of which energy may attain development. But insofar as a negative value is also a possibility through which energy may attain development, as may, for instance, be clearly seen in the very considerable manifestations of energy shown in neurosis, it also stands for a value, albeit it brings about manifestations of energy which are useless and harmful. In itself, energy is neither useless nor harmful, neither full of value nor lacking in it. It is indifferent, everything depending upon the form into which it enters. The form gives the quality to the energy. On the other side, mere form without energy is also indifferent. Therefore, in order to bring about a positive value, on the one hand energy is necessary, and upon the other, a valuable form. In a neurosis, psychic energy is undoubtedly present, but in an inferior and not realizable form. Both the analytic methods that have been discussed above are of service only as solvents of this inferior form. They prove themselves good here as caustics. By these methods, we gain energy that is certainly free, but which, being as yet unapplied, is indifferent. Hitherto the supposition prevailed that this newly acquired energy was at the patient's conscious disposal, that he might apply it in any way he liked. Insofar as it was thought that the energy was nothing but the sexual impulse, people spoke of a sublimated application of the same, under the presumption that the patient could, without further ado, transfer what was thought of as sexual energy into a sublimation, that is, into a non-sexual form of use. It might, for instance, be transferred to the cultivation of an art, or to some other good or useful activity. According to this concept, the patient had the possibility of deciding either arbitrarily or from inclination how his energy should be sublimated. This conception may be accorded a justification for its existence, insofar as it is at all possible for a human being to assign a definite direction to his life, in which its course should run. But we know that there is no human forethought nor philosophy which can enable us to give our lives a prescribed direction, except for quite a short distance. Destiny lies before us, perplexing us, and teeming with possibilities, and yet only one of these many possibilities is our own particular right way. Who should presume to designate the one possibility beforehand, even though he have the most complete knowledge of his own character that a man can have? Much can certainly be attained by means of willpower but having regard to the fate of certain personalities with particularly strong wills, it is entirely misleading for us to want, at all costs, to change our own fate by power of will. Our will is a function that is directed by our powers of reflection. It depends, therefore, upon how our powers of reflection are constituted. In order to deserve its name, reflection must be rational, that is, according to reason. But has it ever been proved, or can it ever be proved, that life and destiny harmonize with our human reason? that is, that they are exclusively rational? On the contrary, we have ground for supposing that they are also irrational, that is to say, that in the last resort they too are based in regions beyond the human reason. The irrationality of the great process is shown by its so-called accidentalness, which perforce we ought to deny, since, obviously, we cannot think of a process not being casually and necessarily conditioned. But actually, accidentality exists everywhere, and does so indeed so obtrusively that we might as well pocket our casual philosophy. The rich store of life both is and is not determined by law. It is at the same time rational and irrational. Therefore the reason and the will founded upon it are only valid for a short distance. The further we extend this rationally chosen direction, the surer we may be that we are thereby excluding the irrational possibilities of life, which have, however, just as good a right to be lived. Aye. We even injure ourselves, since we cut off the wealth of accidental eventualities by a too rigid and conscious direction. It was certainly very expedient for man to be able to give his life a direction. It would, therefore, be quite right to maintain that the attainment of reasonableness was the greatest achievement of mankind. But that is not to say that under all circumstances this must, or will, always continue to be the case. The present fearful catastrophic world war has tremendously upset the most optimistic upholder of rationalism and culture. In 1913, Ostwald wrote as follows, The whole world agrees that the present state of armed peace is untenable, and is gradually becoming an impossible condition. It demands tremendous sacrifices from individual nations, far surpassing the outlay for cultural purposes, without any positive values being gained thereby. Therefore, if mankind could discover ways and means of putting an end to these preparations for a war that will never come, This conscripting of a considerable part of the nation at the best and most capable age for training for war purposes, if it could overcome all the innumerable other injuries caused by the present customs, such an enormous saving of energy would be effected, that an undreamt of development of the evolution of culture might be expected. For like a hand-to-hand fight, war is the oldest and also the most unsuitable of all possible means of solving a conflict between wills, being indeed accompanied by the most deplorable waste of energy." The complete setting aside of potential, as well as of actual warfare is, therefore, absolutely one of the most important tasks of culture in our time, a real necessity from the point of view of energy. But the irrationality of destiny ordained otherwise than the rationality of the well-meaning thinker, since it not only determined to use the piled-up weapons and soldiers, but much more than that, it brought about a tremendous insane devastation and unparalleled slaughter— From this catastrophe, humanity may possibly draw the conclusion that only one side of fate can be mastered by rational intention. What can be said of mankind in general applies also to individuals, for mankind as a whole consists of nothing but individuals. And whatever the psychology of mankind is, that is also the psychology of the individual. We are experiencing in the World War a fearful balancing up with the rational intentionality of organized culture. What is called will in the individual is termed imperialism among nations, for the will is a demonstration of power over fate, that is, exclusion of what is accidental. The organization of culture is a rational and expedient sublimation of free and indifferent energies, brought about by design and intention. The same is the case in the individual. And just as the hope of a universal international organization of culture has experienced a cruel right about through this war, so also must the individual, in the course of his life, often find that so-called disposable energies do not suffer themselves to be disposed of. I was once consulted by a businessman of about 45, whose case is a good illustration of the foregoing. He was a typical American self-made man, who had worked himself up from the bottom. He had been successful, and had founded a very extensive business. He had also gradually organized the business in such a way that he could now retire from its management. He had indeed resigned two years before I saw him. Until then he had only lived for his business, concentrating all his energy upon it, with that incredible intensity and one-sidedness that is so peculiar to the successful American man of business. He had bought himself a splendid country seat, where he thought he would live, which he imagined to mean keeping horses, automobiles, playing golf and tennis, attending and giving parties, etc., but he had reckoned without it his host. The energy that had become disposable did not enter into these tempting prospects but betook itself capriciously to quite other ways. A couple of weeks after the commencement of his longed-for life of bliss, he began to brood over peculiar vague physical sensations. A few more weeks sufficed to plunge him into an unprecedented state of hypochondria. His nerves broke down completely. He, who was physically an uncommonly strong and exceptionally energetic man, became like a whining child, and that put an end to all his paradise. He fell from one apprehension to another, worrying himself almost to death. He then consulted a celebrated specialist, who immediately perceived quite rightly that there was nothing wrong with the man but lack of employment. The patient saw the sense of this, and betook himself to his former physician. But to his great disappointment, no interest for his business presented itself. Neither the application of patience nor determination availed to help. His energy would not by any means be forced back into the business. His condition naturally became worse than before. Energy that had hitherto been actively creative was now turned back into himself, with fearfully destructive force. His creative genius rose up, so to speak, in revolt against him, and instead of, as before, producing great organizations in the world, his demon now created equally clever systems of hypochondriac fallacies, by which the man was absolutely crushed. When I saw him, he was already a hopeless moral ruin. I tried to make clear to him that such a gigantic amount of energy might indeed be withdrawn from business, But the problem remained as to where it should go. The finest horses, the fastest automobiles, and the most amusing parties are in themselves no inducement for energy, although it is certainly quite rational to think that a man who has devoted his whole life to serious work has a natural right to enjoy himself. This would necessarily be the case if things happened humanly in destiny. First would come work, then well-earned leisure, but things happen irrationally and inconveniently enough. Energy requires a congenial channel, Otherwise, it is dammed up and becomes destructive. My arguments met with no response, as was indeed to be expected. Such an advanced case can only be taken care of till death. It cannot be cured. This case clearly illustrates the fact that it does not lie in our power to transfer a disposable energy to whatever rationally chosen object we may like. Exactly the same may be said of those apparently available energies that are made available by the fact that the psychoanalytical caustic has destroyed their unsuitable forms. These energies can be arbitrarily applied, as has already been said, at the very most only for a short time. They resist following the rationally presented possibilities for any length of time. Psychic energy is indeed a fastidious thing, that insists upon having its own conditions fulfilled. There may be ever so much energy existing, but we cannot make it useful, so long as we do not succeed in finding a congenial channel for it. The whole of my research work for the last years has been concentrated upon this question. The first stage of this work was to discover the extent to which the two theories discussed above were tenable. The second stage consisted in the recognition of the fact that these two theories corresponded to opposite psychological types, which I have designated the introversion and the extroversion types. William James was struck by the existence of these two types among thinkers. He differentiated them as the tough-minded and the tender-minded. Similarly. Ostwald discovered an analogous difference in the classical and romantic types among great scholars. I am not therefore alone in my ideas about the types, as is testified by mentioning only these two well-known names out of many others. Historical researches have proved to me that not a few of the great controversies in the history of thought were based upon the contrast between the types. The most significant case of this kind is the contrast between nominalism and realism, which, beginning with the difference between the Platonic and the Megarian schools, descended to scholastic philosophy, where Abelard won the immortal distinction of at least having ventured to an attempt to unite the two contradictory standpoints in conceptualism. This conflict has continued down to the present day, where it finds expression in the antagonism of spiritualism and materialism. Just as in the general history of thought, so too every individual has a share in this contrast of types close investigation proves that people of opposite types have an unconscious predilection for marrying each other, that they may mutually complement one another. Each type has one function that is specially well developed, the introvert using his thought as the function of adaptation, thinking beforehand about how he shall act, whilst the extrovert, on the contrary, feels his way into the object by acting. To some extent he acts beforehand, hence by daily application the one has developed his thought and the other his feeling. In extreme cases. The one limits himself to thinking and observing, and the other to feeling and acting. It is true that the introvert feels also, very deeply indeed, almost too deeply. That is why an English investigator has gone so far as to describe his as the emotional type. True, the emotion is there, but it all remains inside, and the more passionate and deeper his feeling is, the quieter is his outward demeanour. As the proverb puts it, still waters run deep. Similarly, the extrovert thinks also but that likewise mostly inside. Whilst his feelings visibly go outside, that is why he is held to be full of feeling, whilst the introvert is considered cold and dry. But as the feeling of the thinker goes inwards, it is not developed as a function adapted to external situations, but remains in a relatively undeveloped state. Similarly, the thinking of one who feels remains also relatively undeveloped. But if comparatively well-adapted individuals are under consideration, then the introvert will normally be found to have his feeling directed outwards, and the result may be extraordinarily deceptive. He shows feelings. He is amiable, sympathetic, even emotional. But a critical examination of the expressions of his feelings reveals that they are markedly conventional. They are not individualized. He shows to everyone, without any essential difference, the same friendliness and the same sympathy, whilst the extrovert's expressions of feeling are throughout delicately graded and individualized. With the introvert, the expression of feelings is really a gesture that is artificially adopted and conventional. Similarly, the extrovert may apparently think, and that even very clearly and scientifically, but upon closer investigation, his thoughts are found to be really foreign property, merely conventional forms which have been artificially acquired. They lack anything individual and original, and are just as lukewarm and colorless as the conventional feelings of the introvert. Under these conventional disguises, quite other things are slumbering in both, which occasionally, when awakened by some overpowering effect, suddenly break out to the astonishment and horror of the environment. Most civilized people incline more to one type than the other. Taken together, they would supplement each other exceedingly well. That is why they are so apt to marry one another, and so long as they are fully occupied with adapting themselves to the necessities of life, they suit one another splendidly. But if the man has earned a competence, or if a big legacy dropped from the sky, terminating the external urgencies of life, then they have time to occupy themselves with each other. Until now they stood back to back, defending themselves against want. But now they turn to each other expecting to understand one another, and they make the discovery that they have never understood one another. They speak different languages. Thus the conflict between the two types of psychology begins. This conflict is venomous, violent, and full of mutual depreciation even if it be conducted very quietly in the utmost intimacy. This is so because the value of the one is the worthlessness of the other. The one, starting from the standpoint of his valuable thinking, takes for granted that the feelings of the other correspond to his own inferior feelings. This because he knows absolutely nothing of any other feelings. But the other, starting from the standpoint of his valuable feelings, assumes that his partner has the same inferior thought that he himself has. Evidently, there is plenty of work here for Goethe's homunculus, who had to find out why husband and wife get on so badly. Now as many cases of neuroses have a basis in such differences, I, as a physician, found myself obliged to relieve the homunculus of some of his ungrateful task. I am glad to be able to say that many a sufferer has been helped in grave difficulties by the enlightenment I could give. The third stage of the path of increasing understanding consisted in formulating a theory of the psychology of types which would be of practical use for the development of man. Viewed from the newly gained standpoint, there resulted, first of all, a totally new theory of psychogenic disturbances. The foundation of the facts remains the same. The first hypothesis of every neurosis is the existence of an unconscious conflict. According to Freud's theory, this is an erotic conflict, or to speak more exactly, a battle of the moral consciousness against the unconscious infantile sexual world of fantasy and its transference to external objects. According to Adler's theory, it is a battle of the superiority of the ego against all oppressive influences, whether from inside or outside. But the new idea asserts that the neurotic conflict always takes place between the adapted function and the co-function that is undifferentiated and that lies to a great extent in the unconscious. Therefore in the case of the introvert, between thought and unconscious feeling, but in that of the extrovert, between feeling and unconscious thought. Another theory of the etiological moment results from this. If a man who naturally adapts himself by thinking is faced by a demand that cannot be met by thinking alone, but which requires differentiated feeling, the traumatic or pathogenic conflict breaks out. On the contrary, the critical moment comes to the man who adapts by feeling when he is faced by a problem requiring differentiated thought. The aforementioned case of the businessman is a clear example of this. The man was an introvert, who all through his life had left every consideration of sentiment in the background, that is, in the unconscious. But when for the first time in his life he found himself in a situation in which nothing could be done except by means of differentiated feeling, he failed utterly. At the same time, a very instructive phenomenon occurred. His unconscious feelings manifested themselves as physical sensations of a vague nature. This fact harmonizes with the generally accepted experience in our psychology, to wit, that undeveloped feelings partake of the character of vague physical sensations, since undifferentiated feelings are as yet identical with subjective physical sensations. Differentiated feelings are of a more abstract objective nature. This phenomenon may well be the unconscious basis of the earliest statement of psychological types that is known to me, namely, the three types of the Valentinian school. They held the undifferentiated type to be the so-called Hiluck, material man. He was ranked below the differentiated types, that is, the psychic, soulful man, who corresponds to the extroversion type, and the pneumatic, spiritual man, who corresponds to the introversion type. For these Gnostics, the pneumaticos, stood of course the highest. Christianity, with its psychic, spiritual nature, principle of love, has indeed contested this privilege of the Gnosis. But even this page may be turned in the course of time, since, if the signs of the age are not deceptive, we are now in the great final settlement of the Christian epic. We know that, evolution not being uniformly continuous, when one form of creation has been outlived, the evolutionary tendency harks back to resume that form which, after having made a beginning, was left behind in an undeveloped state. After this brief digression to generalities, let us return to our case. If a similar disturbance were to take place in an extrovert, he would have what are called hysterical symptoms, that is, symptoms that are also of an apparently physical nature, which, as our theory indicates, would this time represent the patient's unconscious, undifferentiated thought. As a matter of fact, we find also a widespread region of fantasy as the basis of hysterical symptoms, of which many have been described in detail in the literature of the subject. There are fantasies of a pronounced sexual, that is physical, complexion. But in reality they are undifferentiated thoughts, which in common with the undifferentiated feelings are to some extent physical, and therefore appear as what may be called physical symptoms. By taking up again here the thread that was dropped before, we can now clearly see why it is precisely in the neurosis that those values which are most lacking to the individual lie hidden. We might also now return to the case of the young woman, and apply to it the newly won insight. She is an extrovert with an hysterical neurosis. Let us suppose that this patient had been analyzed, that is, that the treatment having made it clear to her what kind of unconscious thoughts lay behind her symptoms, She had regained possession of the psychic energy which by becoming unconscious had constituted the strength of the symptoms. The following practical question now arises, what can be done with the so-called available energy? It would be rational, and in accordance with the psychological type of the invalid, to extrovert this energy again, that is to transfer it to an object, as for instance to philanthropic or some other useful activities. This way is possible only in exceptional cases. There are energetic natures who do not shrink from care and trouble in a useful cause. There are people who care immensely about just such occupations, otherwise it is not feasible. For it must not be forgotten that in the case under consideration, the libido, that is the technical expression for the psychic energy, has found its object already unconsciously in the young Italian, or an appropriate real human substitute. Under these circumstances, such a desirable sublimation, however natural, is out of the question for the object of the energy usually affords a better channel than an ethical activity, however attractive. Unfortunately, there are many people who always speak of a person, not as he is, but as he would be if their desires for him were realized. But the physician is necessarily concerned with the actual personality, which will obdurately remain the same, until its real character has been recognized on all sides. An analysis must necessarily be based upon the recognition of naked reality, not upon any arbitrarily selected fantasies about a person, however desirable. The fact is that the so-called available energy, unfortunately, cannot be arbitrarily directed as desired. It follows its own channel, one which it had already found, even before we had quite released it from its bondage to the unadapted form. For we now make the discovery that the fantasies which were formerly occupied with the young Italian have been transferred to the physician himself. The physician has therefore himself become the object of the unconscious libido. If this is not the case, or if the patient will on no account acknowledge the fact of transference, or again if the physician either does not understand the phenomenon at all, or does so wrongly, then violent resistances make their appearance, which aim at completely breaking off relations with the doctor. At this point, patients leave and look for another doctor or for people who understand them, or if they hopelessly relinquish the search they go to pieces. But if the transference to the physician takes place and is accepted, a natural channel has thereby been found, which not only replaces the former, but also makes a discharge of the energetic process possible and provides a course that is relatively free from conflict. Therefore, if the libido is allowed its natural course, it will of its own accord find its way into the transference. Where this is not the case, it is always a question either of arbitrary rebellion against the laws of nature, or of some deficiency in the physician's work. Into the transference, every conceivable infantile fantasy is first of all projected. These must then be subjected to the caustic, that is, analytically dissolved. This was formerly called the dissolution of the transference. Thereby, the energy is freed from this unsuitable form also, and once again we are confronted by the problem of disposable energy. We shall find that an object affording the most favorable channel has been chosen by nature even before our search began. End of chapter 14 The Psychology of the Unconscious Processes, Part 4, The Two Types of Psychology.